Hey, it's Rick Dayton. It's Tuesday, the 17th of January. What did we learn today? You can find out by listening right here on KDKA and our social media channels. 37 minutes past 2 o'clock on KDKA. I've been really, really excited about having an opportunity to talk and learn about this subject with our next guest. I want to welcome into the program a young lady by the name of Maria Maza who is joining us. She is a graduate student in Dr. Eva Tesler's lab at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And that lab has recently had some of its work published in the Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics. And it is the, uh, a study that is looking at uh, how exactly does the brain function change? And is there a correlation as it relates to social media use over a period of years? Maria, it is wonderful to have you here. Welcome to KDKA in, in, in gloomy and overcast Pittsburgh. How are things in Chapel Hill today? They're great. They're also a little gloomy, but I really appreciate getting the opportunity to be invited onto your show. Well, this is an amazing, amazing study because, you know, I think it's important to point out at the very beginning of this, the the mentor in your lab has said, you know, let's let's acknowledge that there are some important limitations that because adolescence is a time when kids are making many, many friends and expanding sort of their knowledge and their circle, that the brain differences could simply be a matter of, you know, they're gravitating toward peers. It doesn't necessarily have to correlate with social media usage. Is that, am I saying that appropriately? Did I, did I capture sort of what Eva was saying? You're right. So adolescence is a really unique um, developmental period where there's a lot of changes that teens experience within their brains and their bodies that help prepare them in, uh, in for the transition into adulthood. And one of the changes is that they start seeking out more in social interactions, particularly with their peers. So now, what... the unique thing about media platforms um, is that they allow teens to have this constant access to social feedback whenever they want to. Right. You know, at any point they can open up an app and, and be able to see all sorts of social information, which is rewarding, which is what we're trying to capture within our research. But you're absolutely right. We cannot draw um, causal inferences based on on these associations that we found. So what you've been doing is basically looking at successive, if I understand it correctly, brain scans, looking at kids between the ages of 12 and 15, which is a time when obviously there's a lot of brain development that's going on. And in essence, what I understand you found is that those who were habitually checking social media feeds showed a very distinct trajectory and and that as a result, they were looking for more social rewards from peers and that that seemed to go up and up and up. How did you do that? Give us an idea from a methodology standpoint. How did you go about drawing that inference? Yeah, so basically we brought in some teen participants um, and we asked them to tell us how often they checked different social media platforms, um, which happened to be popular when we collected the study, which was in 2018. Um, And then um, every single year for a period of three years, we had them complete a brain scan. And while they were in the scanner, they played a computer game in which they anticipated and then received social feedback. So they were shown a picture of a smiling peer and a picture of a frowning peer, for example. And we were able to see what brain regions are activated in response to getting social feedback from their peers as a result. 
I think it's fascinating that you basically break these kids out, and they came from rural North Carolina. You broke them out into what you're terming habitual users, that you're talking about those people who were moderate users and non-habitual users. Help us to understand, what do those three terms mean in terms of your research? Right. So we basically broke them up into three quite even distributions of groups. And we found that there was a group of um, adolescents who checked very, very few times, basically not more than once per day. So sometimes they weren't even checking social media every day. Mm -hmm. And those were the non-habitual checkers. The moderate checkers were individuals who checked anywhere between one to around 14 times per day. And the habitual checkers were those who were checking 15 or more times per day. That's a staggering, staggering number. And yet at the same time, I know that it's not just kids who are doing that. I know a lot of adults who are in the exact same. When you consider that those social media platforms might be your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, TikTok, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? I mean, by the time you check each one of those, you know, there's four different <laughs> ones. You do it four times. You're at 15, right? I mean, you're there yep. in, in that in that regard. So it's not a matter mm-hmm. of checking your Instagram 15 times a day. It's just any social media platform, correct? Exactly. Got it. So after you've been through this and after you've gone through the process from 2018 and you worked through this over a period of three years, what were your conclusions? What did you find? Yeah, so we found that teens who checked social media more often, so who were checking habitually, saw an increase in their sensitivity to expected social feedback over time. In other words, it seemed that these teens were becoming more attuned to social feedback. However, teens who didn't check as often were becoming less sensitive to the same social feedback over time. Now, a really important question to ask ourselves or that that has come up a lot is whether these changes are good or bad. And the answer is that we can't answer that with the current study that we um, conducted. The increasing sensitivity that we're seeing in teens who are checking social media more often could potentially be negative when it prompts future compulsive social media checking behaviors. However, it could also be an adaptive change that is going to help them navigate social interactions, particularly Mm -hmm. digital social interactions, in a world that's increasingly becoming more and more digital. So there could be a positive side to it, whereas the old-timers may be saying, well, this is all horrible, it doesn't make any sense. But for them, it doesn't make any sense. For the young people that their world is digital, it may make perfect sense. That's sort of what I hear you saying. Absolutely. And we just need to do more research to determine how these maybe differences could be impacting kids' social and emotional outcomes later on. So as we wrap things up with Maria Maza here from the University of North Carolina, one of the co-authors of this study that we're talking about, what do you do next? I mean, how do you follow up? Are, are there things that have sort of been consensus within the lab and within this study group that says, hey, we really need to look at this? Or are there two or three different things that could lead to a multitude of different studies? That's a good question. Um, I think one of the very clear um, suggestions that we got from this paper is that we need to start exploring how digital media and social media might be impacting kids starting from an earlier age. You know, at the beginning of the study, we we worked with 12-year-olds, and we found that there were already differences within how their brains were processing that may or may not be due to... um, social media use before the, the study was collected. So we want to try to do this experiment again, but starting 
from like third and fourth graders to see how they are um, behaving and how their brain trajectories look before they even start using digital media. And then once they start to be able to better capture these differences. It also seems to me that you could do another one that is, is a child an introvert or an extrovert? And does that impact what it is in terms of, you know, are they going to be a habitual user as opposed to a non-habitual based on just their inclination to other people, right? I mean, you could look at that. Absolutely. There's so, so many other factors that might impact brain development trajectories. Um, and so we, it's important to look at them as a bigger scale and how they function with social media at the same time. Well, Maria, I don't want you to look at brain trajectory of radio talk show hosts because I'm afraid of what that might end up leading to. But I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the research that you all have done and your ability to come on and, and share that with us here in Pittsburgh. Thank you very, very much for, uh, for your insight and for your articulate way of, of going through this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great stuff from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Go Heels. Boy, what an amazing, amazing piece of research that is. What's the number that is too much? What's the number that you just can't bounce back from by having a little something set aside? What's the number that leads to financial disaster? I think more and more American families are finding out the hard way that they're closer to that number than they have been before. Case in point, more families facing shock for life-saving medications, oftentimes for their kids. In one case, and an example, is epinephrine. Those of us who have children who have allergies that are significant enough know all about epinephrine and EpiPens. The EpiPen is the automatic injector that puts a dosage of epinephrine into a child's thigh that if they are having a severe allergic reaction, that allows them to just jam that. Uh, basically, it's like a, a magic marker size injector, jam it into their leg, and literally a needle pops out, injects the epinephrine into their body, and hopefully that is enough to take them out of the anaphylactic shock or the, the allergic reaction or whatever it is in terms of their state. It's a, it can be a life-saving medication, no question. One of our sons peanut allergy. And as a result, we know all about the EpiPens that are out there. Well, here's a perfect example. And this is just a, an anecdotal story from a woman named Megan, who used to pay $30 a piece for the packages of those epinephrine auto injectors. She had two kids who both had food allergies. We just had one. But the price of four packs of it were $120 a year. So, now you go fast forwarding and you realize that the family pharmacist just recently told them that each auto injector pack is now going to cost $600. Used to be $120, $30 each, $120 for a four pack, now $600 for a four pack. And as a result, her out of pocket costs for the year are up to $2,400 just to have this life-saving medicine on hand. And, you know, here's the other thing that nobody ever talks about, and I'll tell you just because we know that there is a shelf life on the active ingredient in the epinephrine. And that while the injector may still work, the medicine inside may not, so you have to replace them. You have to replace them. 
So it's not even a matter of, okay, I buy one and I'm not going to use it. The number in, in our son, who's now 26, in his lifetime, only one time has he had to use the auto-injector epinephrine, his EpiPen. Only one time. He's in medicine. He actually had to do it himself and call the ambulance to take himself to the hospital because his wife's a nurse and was, was at work. Literally had to do it himself here within the last year. But that means 25 years worth of these that literally we would just buy and throw them out at the end of that time. Epinephrine is one example there. A lot of families find themselves being caught off guard by the EpiPen. Now, this is not something that's new. This is something that, you know, we have been hearing about for quite some time that these things are going to be going up and up and up in cost. And this is one that certainly has gone up in cost an awful lot. And uh, this is one of those that I believe is tied to uh, Heather Bresch, who was the daughter of Joe Manchin, senator in West Virginia, and the company that that's the pharmaceutical company that she has run. So I know that EpiPen is something that we have heard a lot about these things. But it's not just the cost of medicine that is going up. Here's the other thing, the other part of it, the other shoe that is dropping right now. Based on the cost of medical insurance, many companies are finding themselves in a situation where they have to put plans in place that have significantly higher deductibles for their employees. Because insurance is so expensive that if they do not put these high deductible plans in place, they simply cannot afford to pay the premiums. I'll give you another example. I have a brother-in-law who owns a company in Ohio. And at his company, I think there are about 35 employees, give or take. And at his company, one of the things that they noticed was that there were three, or I think he said four people in calendar year 2022 who had significant medical situations in their family that were covered by the practice's medical insurance plan. Four people had significant issues. And so because of that, by the end of the year, when you look at the amount of money the insurance companies had to pay out, they came back and said, we're going to have to raise your rates in order to continue to keep you covered. And so what he realized was that the only way that they could continue to provide coverage for their employees was to make it so that the employees had a significantly higher annual deductible. And I mean significantly. Think $5,000, $7,000 per person deductible. So I understand that insurance is to be there as a safety net. If you have something catastrophic happen, heaven forbid you're in a car accident, you're in a coma for two weeks, you come out of that, you've got broken arms, you've got broken legs, you've got spinal injuries, you've got concussions, you've got all these issues that you're dealing with, that that medical insurance, okay, yes, if you have a $7,000 deductible, okay, you pay that $7,000, but everything else beyond that should, should be covered. 
That's the catastrophic thing we're talking about, right? If you are dealing with an end-of-life situation and you're dealing with intensive care units and you're dealing with um, you know, the special medications and you're dealing with... And, and those are the situations where I'm saying that these are catastrophic costs that would be built. But still, $7,000. Let's say you've got four people, four kids in a, in a family, six people all together. And then you look at it and you say, okay, 7,000, 7,000, 7,000, 7,000, 7,000, $42,000. You could amass, before insurance kicks in, $42,000 that year that you have to, who's got that extra money in the budget? Who does? I mean, regardless of what you're making, who's just got that in the budget? And the reality is that right now there are an awful lot of families who are dealing with these decisions as to what do you do, how do you do it, how do we pay it, how do we go about uh, making heads or tails of it. We thought that we had insurance coverage. Well, we do, but the reality is you're having to pay a lot more of it out of your pocket than we used to pay out of pocket. Something's got to give. Rick Dayton on the radio, Ken Rice on the television, but Ken Rice, always the overachiever, is also on the radio. I, I, I don't know how you do it. I mean, you do more media each day than anybody I know. You do, uh, do, you, do you do newspaper also? I mean, you do social media, you do radio, you do television. What else are you doing media-wise? A little, a uh, little ham radio, nice, and a, a little um, Morse code. I do a little Morse, yeah, very catchy. Yeah, just like that, right? I think that was SOS. I'm just saying that my ship is sinking. Um, yeah, well, um, I'll send help. That's what I'm here for. I listen for signals of distress, and I send help. That's your, that's your job. I do Morse code. You're brilliant. Yeah. Samuel Morse, telegraph operator. Um, the question, we I had a, a woman on earlier today from the University of North Carolina, Ken, and I think that um, I, I, I wish that you could have heard it because what we were talking about, they did a study at the University of North Carolina that was looking at brain scans of young people, 12 to 15 years old, and they put these young people into three different categories, habitual users, uh, regular users and non-habitual users of social media. And then after yeah. those brain scans, what they were doing is seeing whether or not there were patterns developing in terms of brain activity for them yearning to be more engaged with peers or less engaged. And there was a direct uh, relationship between those who were habitual users and a pattern developing in terms of their longing for more involvement and more and more and more, whereas those who were not using it, they didn't see the same kind of pattern. I mean, this was a fascinating discussion that we had earlier today. And I think, Ken, I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, but the number of times that I get feedback from listeners who are saying, you know, wh where are we going with all of this social media? What, what what is happening with it? And and some people say it's all bad. And some people say, well, no, there's great that can come out of it. We get more information out of it. And I thought that her point, and this is a long-winded way of getting to, to my question for you, is we don't know at this point whether that correlation is good or bad. Because it could be truly good for young people who are operating in a world that is far more digital than it used to be 
to be able to handle these sorts of, and perhaps that brain development is good. Maybe it's not just, oh, see, there go those kids again, social media, that's all they care about. I thought that was a fascinating um, conclusion that they were able to come to. Tell me again what the age group was. 12 to 15-year-olds, and they started back in 2018 and looked at them for three years. I'm kind of surprised they were able to find, frankly, anybody in that age group who is not a habitual. Well, a very good point. No, and they broke it down. Yeah, they broke it down and said, you know, habitual was people who were 15 or more times per day checking their social media. The, 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 the sort of the middle of the road was one to 15 times. And hmm. the people who were non-habitual were you know, one or less per day. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, I think that there are some, but you're absolutely right. I think it's harder and harder to find that non-habitual offender, if you will, in in that group. Well, let me ask you, have you, are you aware of anyone, any, any peer of yours or younger um, who has forsworn a smartphone, who has, who does not look at uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, what have you? Boy, that's a really good question. I mean, I know that I, there are some people who, uh, you know, older than I who have not chosen to have smartphones, yeah. you know, that they prefer yeah. to stay with a flip phone or something like that. Um, but boy, that's a really, really good question. And, and I had somebody I also talk to me about, you know what, that little ding that you get when you get a message basically equates to a dopamine hit, right? I mean, that it sure. emotionally, you see yeah. that red circle on your iPhone or your Android under your messages, and you can't wait to go see it, that that's a draw, that's a pull, that that's like dopamine, right? I mean, that's almost like a chemical in your brain saying, ah, this feels good. It's a tiny little reward, and it makes you want more. Mm. Yeah, I mm. think all of that is known to the. I'm, 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 I know that it is known yeah. to the people who uh, who produce these sites and and decide on how to how to promote content to various users. How to market no, it across? I, I yeah. can't think of anyone that I know who has uh, sort of adopted the smartphone social media habit and then abandoned it. Yeah, uh, and I think that's that's worrisome. I've you know I've never really tried because I, I I'm sure I would fail. It just becomes a way of, for me, it, it, it is, it's a way of staying in touch with what's happening. And I use Twitter more than anything else. And Twitter, like it or not, it is a function of who you follow. So yes, I'm it following is. all of the local news sources. I'm following most of the major national news sources. I'm following a lot of political figures, law enforcement agencies. And it's this constantly updated stream, much of it meaningless, uh, things that are are not relevant to my life or to my job. But as someone who wants to be constantly... You don't want to miss, right? You don't want to miss out. Yep. That's right. You're a radio talk show host. How can you? How would you possibly feel about being cut off from a constant source of potentially yeah. relevant information? Yeah. I think that's the trap we've all fallen into. Do you remember... I do you remember the story that I did at KDK about a family that we got to volunteer to give up all of their their gadgets and their tech and their phones and their iPads yeah, and their computers for that. a weekend? And then yeah. just what it was like for them to sit around and not have their phones. And now what are we going to do? Are we going to play a game? Seriously? But they were all right there in the middle of the kitchen counter taped down so that nobody could have them. And then the kids get back on and, oh, my gosh, I've got 1,694 text messages. I've got this. Mm-hmm. I've got that. And, you know, it, it just was. It was almost like withdrawal for them to go through that. It was almost mm-hmm. like an addiction that you couldn't have. And then what are you going to do? do about it 
Yeah. And you know what, Rick, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking in the interest of full transparency, if I didn't feel like I needed to be on top of every potentially relevant news story, mm -hmm. I think I would absolutely still be addicted to my smartphone. That's, that's, <laughs> just, that's just the way it is. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it's no, just the way it is. It's true. Hey, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I've cut into to your time as far as what's coming up on, on KDK at five. and know you got to go. What do you got for us tonight? Uh, well, first of all, we're going live to Harrisburg. Our Bureau Chief Seth Kaplan reporting on the inauguration today, Governor Josh Shapiro. And then a local borough, I'm just going to give you two stories here. A local borough is seeing mass resignations in its government, and there's a secret letter that might be behind it all, an anonymous letter. We're going to explain that connection all coming up. KDK News at 5. Put down your smartphone and uh, or actually, you know, keep it in your hand, but just tune in. You can also watch the stream live on CBSN, right? You can do that, too. Yeah. You could do that, yes. Can I be a bureau chief for, like, your Green Tree Bureau? We would have to establish – I mean, you would demand luxurious resources and accommodations. <laughs> so give us time to outfit something, and then we'll let you know. Thank you. And, and, and we'll talk about it tomorrow, okay? Is that enough okay. time? Yep. <laughs> Probably yeah, not enough sure. time. <laughs> yeah, All right. we'll have it ready. Very good. Okay. I'm sure it'll be really elaborate. Ken, thank you. It's going to be the restroom at a local fast food restaurant. That's perfectly fine. Not not a problem. Okay. As long as they've got good. clean paper towels, we're good. Hey, Ken, thanks for being here. Ken Rice from KDK Television getting set for their 5 o'clock newscast as we get set for Paul Alexander.